thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I believe today, well, at least for me, it's going to be one of the most enjoyable podcasts that I've recorded in the 70-something episodes, year and a half, whatever it is that, that we've been doing God, Law, and Liberty. And, and the information that I'm going to share today that follows up on last week and will lead into next week is some of the most exciting stuff that I've, I've ever thought about and, and, and seen, uh, is particularly in Scripture as it pertains to the why and how of Christian engagement in politics. And I want to pick up where we left off last week, that I said we're, we're getting ready to get into the nub of this issue. And I've referenced many, many times over the last several weeks Dr. George Grant's statement at Restoring the Vision that whatever it is you do, even if it's a matter of public policy, you start with who is God and what has He done. Now, last week, if you don't recall or you weren't able to listen last week's episode, I said that the question we're going to focus on is what has God done specifically, not the who is God, for now at least. And I said that you can't know what God has done unless you understand the atonement, what took place on the cross, what was God doing there. Everybody, even the non-Christian, would say, yeah, I think the cross is pretty essential, fundamental to what Christianity is and what God was doing. So if you don't have a good grasp of the atonement, you won't know what God was doing, and therefore, if Dr. Grant's statement is true, which I believe it is, you won't know what you should be doing in regard to politics or in regard to any matters of public policy. You'll start at the wrong place with a, with a wrong perspective but for the grace of God leading you otherwise. So, I mentioned last week that since about the middle of the 11th century, there have been two fundamental views of the atonement. One was an objective view. Who was Christ? What did the incarnation mean? Why did Christ have to be in incarnated objectively? And that the atonement was focused on and directed towards God's honor, God's glory, restoring the honor that had been besmirched, I guess we could say, by man's fall away from God in the Garden of Eden. The other view was a more subject-oriented or subjective view, focusing on man, and it was the understanding that what God was doing on the cross with the Incarnation was expressing His love for mankind by coming to rescue mankind from its sin and alienation from God. And, and both aspects of that are true. And when one is lost in lieu of the other, things get out of balance. We noted that today the emphasis seems to be not on the objective work of Christ on the cross, but on the subjective nature of it that's led us to this place that God loves everybody and wants to save everybody. Okay. But there was another view I mentioned that was predominant. In the first 300 plus years of the church, 
that we've lost sight of called the Christus Victor view of the atonement. I mentioned again last week, this is not to replace the objective nature of the atonement in terms of the honor of God and vindicating the honor of God and um, making right the relationship between God and man. It's not to diminish the subjective understanding that the cross is the ultimate expression of love of God, but it is an aspect that's been lost that I believe goes to the heart of what I said, I believe, two weeks ago, where Abraham Kuyper said in 1898 to the seminary students at Princeton, Protestantism wanders without objective, without purpose, hither and thither, not knowing where in the world it's going. And I think it's because we've lost this view of Christus Victor that we don't know what we're supposed to do. And, and so I want to, to take a look at that today. Now, at the end of last week, I left you with verses that relate to the concept of Christus Victor, where the objective work of Christ was focused on or terminated on, not God, not on man, but on the devil. And we looked at the verse in 1 John 3, 8, that says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We made it clear in Hebrews chapter 2, 14, we looked at the verse that said that he took on flesh and blood in order that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. We talked about in 1 Timothy where the Paul wrote that we need to be careful of the snare of the devil. We talked about 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says that the, the lost are those who need to come to the knowledge of the truth and repentance in order that they might escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, we're under a dominion that is headed by, directed by, the devil. Now, a lot of people today don't want to talk about the devil. They don't mind admitting there's a God, but they don't want to admit they're the devil. But when we understand the devil is simply an angel that turned against God, lots of people today believe in angels. But they don't want to believe that an angel went bad, just like we don't want to believe that a human being ever went bad, but they did. So, so the Christus Victor is saying part of what Christ was doing was not just reconciling us to God, expressing his love to us, but he was actually destroying the devil, destroying this angel and his hordes that held us captive and worked against us, against God. Now, what's so exciting and what I'm getting ready to share is that I had never seen the scripture in the light of the work of Christ and what Christ was doing from the moment really of his conception to his death and resurrection as the reversal of the fall of man. And in that sense, destroying the work of the devil. Now I'm going to go through a couple of examples today. I can't go into any great depth 
uh, with respect to any of these particular examples I'm going to give of where Christ is actually going back and repeating what's previously happened and undoing it. But if you would like to read more about it, it's a wonderful book by Sinclair Ferguson called The Holy Spirit. And it's really, really an excellent uh, work. So with that, let's just delve right in to some of what is the indication that, that what was happening was with Christ was designed to reverse the curse as far as the curse was found and to bring about a new creation, a new heaven and an earth, and a new kingdom, and new, this is important, hierarchical authority on this earth in the second Adam in place of the first Adam and his descendants. So let's take a look at a couple of these particular examples. One of the things that we notice right off the bat is when the angel comes to Mary and she's saying, how will this happen that I, being a virgin, will, will have a child? And, and the angel says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now what's interesting about the word that's used there is that the word used in the, in the Greek for overshadow is the same word that was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that would have been extant at the time of, of, of Christ. And it's the same word that was used of the glory cloud of God that was to denote God's presence. For example, in Exodus 40, 35 and verse 29, we also have an, an allusion perhaps here to the, the connection of the Spirit of God hovering uh, almost bird-like over the waters at the original creation, like the Lord hovering eagle-like over his people in the Exodus cloud. He goes on to note that the Spirit descends upon Christ at his baptism and the inauguration of his ministry, in essence hovering over him as well. And here's what Sinclair Ferguson says, while dogmatic certainty about the precise significance of the Spirit appearing in a dove form, this is talking about at Christ's baptism, may not be attainable, all of the possible biblico-theological nuances point in a common direction. There may be a general echo here of the work of the Spirit hovering bird-like over the waters in the first creation. Of course, now we're bringing about a new creation in Christ. Possibly the allusion is to the flood narrative and to the descent of the dove on the new creation which arose out of the destruction of the earth under God's judgment, Genesis 8, 12, and 21. Both echoes may, in fact, be present, underlining that Jesus is the second man and the last Adam who will become life-giving spirit, the new Noah who will at last fulfill the hopes of the faithful for one who will bring rest to a cursed world which is what the word Noah was to mean and signify according to the way his father named him. Ferguson now goes on. He says, These echoes of both creation and exodus suggest that the work of the Spirit should be interpreted in a twofold light. It is a divine work of new creation. As in the original creation, the Spirit's work is de novo, it's new. 
but it is not ex nihilo. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, he was hovering over the pre-existing waters. Here, in the incarnation, he's hovering over the pre-existing Mary. But he's still bringing order and fullness to what is being created. A second aspect of this work of the Spirit that we see here is it's the beginning of the work of redemption, a new exodus. The Spirit hovered over the true Son of God throughout his temptations in the wilderness and for the whole of his life and ministry. The care of God for the Son he called out of Egypt so eloquently expressed throughout the Old Testament is here continued in the care of the Spirit for the Son incarnate, whom he also called out of Egypt, even in the embryonic state in the womb of Mary. Now, he mentioned there in that last paragraph I read from about the temptations in the wilderness, and it's to that I would like to turn for a moment. Again, looking at the situation of Jesus being driven after his baptism into the wilderness. And here's what Sinclair Ferguson says. It has been commonplace to interpret Jesus' temptations as analogous to or almost a model for the tempting of the Christian. Christ was tempted as we are, but resisted. Therefore, we should resist in similar ways. And how many times have I heard that? You have to know the Word, hide the Word of God in your heart, so that when you're uh, subject to temptation, the Word will come to your mind, and you can use that Word to resist temptation. And Sinclair Ferguson continues. But this leads to a partial and negative interpretation of his experiences. Now, what does he mean by that? He explains it in the next sentence. His temptations constitute an epochal event or epochal. Something significant is taking place here that is sui generis. It's one of a kind. It's, it's not just, oh, here's a temptation. Now, here, you do the same thing in your temptation. Something of an epic nature is taking place here. It's as if, he says, the Spirit of the Lord using the verses in, in Mark about this wilderness temptation is advancing the Lord and the kingdom of God into enemy-occupied territory. Now think about it. After the fall, what happened? Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden that had been placed in Eden into what was the wilderness. It wasn't that they just weren't in the garden, and it wasn't that they just weren't in Eden. They were out of Eden. They were in the wilderness. And so where does Christ first go after he's been commissioned by his baptism and the Spirit of God has descended upon him in the form of the dove, symbolizing what we find with Noah, symbolizing the hovering of the Exodus creation, symbolizing perhaps the the, the hovering of the Spirit over the first original creation, boom. He says, I'm going to send you into the wilderness where Adam was driven, and you're going to be tempted even as Adam was tempted. So he continues here. His temptations are not merely personal, but cosmic. They constitute the tempting of the last Adam. 
the first Adam, of course, being the one in the garden. The significance of the event does not lie in the ways in which our temptations are like his. See, that's that subjective-oriented view of the Scripture. We're just looking at the Scripture for what does it say to me about me and my existential moment, not looking at what objectively might actually be taking place here. But instead, what he says, the significance lies in the particularity and uniqueness of Christ's experience. He was driven into the wilderness as an assault force. His testing was set in the context of a holy war in which he entered the enemy's domain, absorbed his attacks, and sent him into retreat. Remember, Jesus dismissed him. In the power of the Spirit, Jesus advanced as the divine warrior, the God of battles who fights on behalf of his people their salvation. His triumph demonstrated that the kingdom of God is near and that the messianic conflict had begun. Now, one of the things that we notice throughout the whole Testament, we don't see a lot of demonic activity. But what do we see immediately beginning to take place with Jesus upon his commissioning? Demonic activity is going nuts and crazy to prevent Christ from doing what he's sent here to do to reverse the curse in every particular. So Sinclair continues, the conflict in which Jesus engaged is therefore to be seen as a rerun of Eden. Like Adam before him, Jesus was incited to be as God and to reject God's word, but he chose the way of God glorifying obedience and suffering instead. His resistance and faithfulness contrast also with the 40 years of wandering and testing in which the people grieved the Spirit rather than conformed to His guidance. Notice the parallel between the 40 days and the 40 years. They rebelled against the Spirit who drove them out of Egypt and grieved Him. And on the contrary, Jesus, anointed with the Spirit, was carried obediently and overcomingly through the test of the wilderness evil day. Thus in the power of the Spirit in the inhospitable desert which the world had become through the first Adam's sin, the second man, the eschatological Adam. That's the word used in 1 Corinthians 15.45 for the last man, the hoeschatos Adam, the eschatological Adam regained enemy-occupied territory. The immediate consequence is that Jesus was able sovereignly to dismiss the devil. Away from me, Satan. It's recorded in Matthew 4.10. And the devil was forced to depart until he could find, quote, an opportune time, Luke 4.13. The longer-term consequence was that, having beaten back Satan on his own territory, Jesus was now in a position to strike fear into his legions and cast them out. And, of course, that's what, as I said, began to happen. Now I want to turn to one last major event in this epochal shift that's taking place with the incarnation of Christ, with his ministry and appointment to ministry and with his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. Now it's after that 
that Pentecost occurs. And we know the, the situation where the wind blew. Again, we see the wind blowing there, do we not? Again, bringing back echoes of, of the concept of the wind and the Spirit of God that was hovering over the new creation to bring fullness and to bring form. And that's what's getting ready to take place here is to bring fullness and to bring form to this doing away of the old mosaical law for the new covenant, the new administration of the Spirit, the completion of the promise of the seed that was mentioned in Genesis 3.15. That's what the whole Bible's been pointing to. The seed, Genesis 3.15. And, and, and somehow we've confused that part of the protology and eschatology and story of the Bible in the first three chapters to say that, well, there's a, there's a Judaic period and um, it's temporarily set aside so we can have a church period and then God's going to come back and restart the Judaic period. But I guess, well, uh, he'll have to get rid of the church, so we're going to have a rapture so that that's sort of out of the way and we can go back to the Judaic uh, fulfillment of prophecy. Not realizing that all of that was pointed toward what was supposed to happen in G Genesis 3.15. I'm going to give you a seed, that's it. And I'm going to protect that seed through a nation. But that nation is an example of the nations that will all now be mine as the descendants of the second Adam, the last man, continue the work of reconciling all things back to him and overcoming the effects of the curse as far as the curse is found. So here's what Sinclair Ferguson says about Pentecost. Pentecost publicly marks the transition from the Old to the New Covenant and signifies the commencement of the now of the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. It is the threshold of the last days and inaugurates the new era in which the eschatological life of the future invades the present evil age. That's why in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, it talks about new creation. You are a new creation because you're a part of a new creation. You've been transferred, it says in Colossians, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That kingdom has arrived, and you have been transferred. It is not a, I will be transferred. I have been transferred. It is, it is why in Galatians, I believe it's chapter 6, it says circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter because it's all about new creation. And, and we have a hard time as Christians believing that. I think back uh, to Habakkuk. He said, you know, if, if I were to even tell you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe it. And he's told us what he's done. I, I have ushered in my new kingdom. I've brought the eschatological future into the present and am carrying it forward to its end. I've reversed the curse. I've, I've broken the power and the captivity and the, of, of, the, of the devil with death and the law and its condemnation. 
and and we live like we got to get out of here, man. This is just a horrible place. It's not a horrible place. If if indeed what Christ was doing was making all things new. We just have to live like we live in the new while we're present in the old that's fading and going away. So Dr. Ferguson continues, and, and here's one of the fascinating things about Pentecost and the big emphasis within the church today of speaking in tongues. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, you don't see that Paul says, oh, don't ever speak in tongues. That's crazy. That's stupid. He, he doesn't speak to the subjectiveness of it, but he speaks to the objectivity of the God of order and doing things in order. But a lot of today's charismatic movement is rooted in what took place at Pentecost. But it's similar to taking the subjective view of the temptation of Christ to take a subjective view of Pentecost and not see the objective thing that was taking place at Pentecost, the epochal thing that was taking place, the ushering in of a new kingdom, the transferring of authority to Christ who's now ascended to the right hand of God as as prophesied by Daniel when, when one as the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days. And so, Dr. Ferguson says, on the morning of Pentecost, the disciples began to speak in other tongues so that visitors to Jerusalem heard the message of the gospel in their own language. Luke's statement here is accompanied by a table of nations, Acts 2, 8-12, just as Notice the parallel. The Genesis record of the confusing of human language is accompanied by a table of nations. Genesis 10, 1 through 32. Again, see the parallel? It's similar to the parallel of the, the wilderness temptation. It's similar to the parallel of the Spirit hovering and covering Mary. And he says, therefore, Part of the answer to the question, what does this mean, seems to be that here we have the reversal of Babel, the founding of the community of the reconciled. Now, this is fascinating to me, too. I.H. Marshall has pointed out that the number 120, which we find in Acts 1.15, was assembled, was part of this Pentecostal um, epochal event, was the minimum number of men required to, quote, establish a community with its own council so that these early Christians were able to, quote, form a new community. On the day of Pentecost, that new community became the sphere in which the eschatological reversal of the effects of sin began to appear in a reconciled people consisting of both Jew and Gentile possessing one Lord, one faith, one baptism, united by the Spirit. The effects of Babel were thus arrested. Now the word of reconciliation will be preached in many languages, since the disciples have received the promised power of the Spirit to enable them to be witnesses to Christ all over the world. 
Luke 24, 48, Acts 1, 4. Well, we've covered a whole lot of ground today, and I hope it has been as fascinating and intriguing and enlightening to you as it was to me when I first began to understand these objective historical developments from the beginning of creation to the present, that God was destroying the works of the devil and ushering in a new kingdom. Next week, we're going to look at the particular effects of this and how it relates specifically to how we think about politics, government, and law. And I'll look forward to joining you again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.